Kai. Welcome to this Garland podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Murray, editor of Garland. These podcasts feature important thinkers and makers that help us understand the place of craft in our world today. Our current issue, titled Know-How, the Grammar of Making, features an article by Patrick Webb titled Maker Mythologies, Classical Origin Stories for the Crafts, which is a fascinating overview of the key role played by craft in the ancient understanding of the world as a divine creation. This is a taste of the rich offerings from his blog called Real Finishes, which I highly recommend. What intrigues me about Patrick is that he articulates this complex world knowledge not as a university professor in the humanities, but as an exponent of his own craft, as a plasterer. So join me as we learn how Patrick Webb connects his lives as a thinker and maker. So greetings, Patrick. Uh, Where are you in the world? Um, Currently, I am in the great state of Texas. And what's it like there? Um, It's been quite warm, uh, but um, I've had some interesting um, work recently there, so um, work opportunities as well. So I'm happy to be here. Terrific. Um, So let's start by uh, learning how you became a plasterer. What was the context for that? I would say child slavery. Um, I say that a bit tongue-in-cheek, you know, my father and my uncle from a very young age pressed me into service. So um, that's how I got my start. Um, You know, I think for children, though, to be able to do something with their hands, um, to be able to use their body and to learn and do that with, you know, older mentors is actually um, quite uh, edifying. So... uh, uh, I, I really enjoyed, you know, those those formative years with with them. Uh, I think for me to really get to the point where I could master my craft, I had to, you know, start going further afield, and um, you know that brought me to other plasters first um, here in the states, and then um, I started traveling to. Italy and, and France and the UK. And um, it, it was kind of a good time in a sense, because I think if I would, had just tried that a generation or two previously, um, I wouldn't have gotten much traction. It just wouldn't have worked. But um, in an ironic kind of way, because they were having difficulty finding, you know, as many apprentices coming up, in their traditions, you know, they were open to the idea of, of uh, you know, taking on someone like myself coming from overseas. So uh, I was a bit of an experiment for them, but uh, you know, I kept hanging around, and they and they kept teaching me. That sounds like an incredible experience to be connecting these different traditions of of plaster around the world. Uh, during the course of that, uh, how have you reflected on on the particular role that plaster plays in in the kind of human endeavor as in terms of human culture? Well, I think in one sense it's really it's its lack of particularity. You know, plaster is something that is uh, 
ubiquitous with civilization. Um, you know, if we, if man really has left the proverbial cave, I think he was able to do so because he was able to take his cave with him wherever he went, perhaps to somewhere where there was, could be better protected or there was more arable land. So plaster enabled human beings to kind of create that shelter, you know, wherever they went. And um, I think if you look back in the long history of civilization, plaster as well, you see the same materials being used again and again. Um, the first is clay. That's probably the foremost material. Um, and then later you see evidence of gypsum and, uh, of course, lime. And uh, So you're talking about uh, a substance or a technique that puts a seal on, on walls and roofs. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I think our words for sealing, as if we're sealing something like sealing an envelope, and the word sealing itself, you know, in English, going back further, they're essentially, we spell them differently now, but they were the same same word with this, essentially the same me meaning. So um, to put a ceiling in your house meant covering your walls as well as your ceilings, as we refer to them now in plaster. And um, so we apply the, basically they apply these materials the same way that we have for thousands and thousands of years. And is it associated with particular building material? Uh, I can't imagine it's used, for instance, when you're dealing with thatched houses. Yeah, well, there's, um, there's, it has a wide range of application. Uh, I would say probably some of the older structures that we know about were adobe and essentially their plaster, if you can think of them that way, is um, plaster bricks, you know, uh, a clay mortar that's combined with straw. And uh, typically that would in turn receive um, a earthen render, sometimes amended with other materials like lime. And um, the, the other interesting thing about these type of materials and uh, we see from a very early period in time is that um, they really lend themselves to a great deal of expression. Um, things like, you know, tinted plasters, ornamentation, even frescoes, you know, all these things just erupt at once. As soon as you have a building, you have these things. So um, plaster as a material is the practical um, reason for it comes together at the same moment it's born with the artistic possibilities. Right. So to an extent, plaster is a, a canvas uh, for, as you say, works like frescoes, but then it's also partly sculpture, isn't it? That there are cornices and, and various molds that are used to create forms. Uh, you know, what, what for you is, in terms of the craft of plaster, you know, particular challenge or something which is is for you sort of a, a key skill that's needed? I'm a bit of an omnivore for plaster myself. That said, I think we all learn the same way in it, if we're learning in a traditional environment. The first thing you do with as an apprentice 
is uh, you learn to mix. So you, you learn to control the management of the water content and get things to the right consistency. So you, you start tending. And uh, then one of the first lessons you learn as you're actually becoming the plaster is to how to get a surface, um, you know, level and, uh, and true. And uh, that's, that's, not so, that's not so easy because if you think about it, you're dealing with a liquid material and you're trying to get that material straight and, uh, and it's drying or setting, maybe both at the same time. So it's changing as you're working with it. So you, you can't bully plaster around. Um, you're not the master. The material is the master and it shapes the man. I think one of the very curious articles in one of in your in your blog, Patrick, was about the comparison between French wine and and plaster. I think this was about uh, a dialogue between you and your wife uh, mm-hmm. about uh, the the nature of blending. Uh, and I got a sense from that that you have also a particular set of values attached to what you consider to be good plaster. Is that right? Yeah, I think in that um, that article, I was kind of stressing perhaps a, a different perspective that um, a more traditional way of winemaking, such as occurs in, let's say, France or Italy, um, versus a more industrial one that we might have in the United States or even Australia. Um, the French are really, they don't think in terms of... Um, of varietals, they don't think in terms of pure materials. Um, they they grow a number of grapes, and uh, for them, what's going to through the process of growing it, as well as um, as fermenting it and blending it, you know, they achieve something that would be greater than any one pure expression of any any grape. Um, and I think they have that similar attitude towards plaster as well. Whereas by contrast, I think in the industrialized, more industrialized approach that I've witnessed when I was first learning, you know, my trade was that I found that we had, you know, certain plasters who were strictly would work in one material, like a clay or a lime or a gypsum or even a hydraulic lime. And, uh, they almost became, you know, um, almost cult members of this one particular material and viewed it as almost in conflict with the other ones. Whereas just like a, a fine wine has a, makes a good pairing, um, it's not meant strictly to just be drunk alone. Plaster is always part of a larger work of architecture. So does that plaster fit the climate? Does it fit the architecture or the perhaps it's even the aesthetic intention of the architect or the owner of the property or its religious function? And what the French and the Italians and, and many of these older plaster traditions have found is that many times it's not one material. It, it, it's, it's more often than not, it's a blend of different materials that are going to meet those requirements and they become bespoke for any given project any given intention so that's right so this is against the kind of industrial mindset that looks for you know quantity as opposed to quality and perhaps 
one size fits all to be more sensitive to the individual conditions. Yeah, and, and it brings some uncertainty as well. You know, when, when you have an industrial situation, you can guarantee that that material will always be the same. There's, there's, there's risk involved. Um, there's exploration involved. But it, it's also how we got these wonderful wine and cheese making and, and tr- traditions that we treasure. Is, and it's a very human activity. It, it's wonder. It's, it's curiosity. Mm. If we step back a bit, Patrick, can I ask you about the relationship between your work as a plasterer, which you know is a manual occupation, uh, obviously a highly skilled one, and your work as a writer? Uh, you know, we we've inherited a, an idea that the world of of making is very separate to the to the world of thinking, uh, and what you do is is to combine them in quite a strong way. Uh, uh, how do they relate in your mind? Well, I, I think sometimes there's a misconception that the um, craft or, or let's say the arts and craft uh, is not really labor. And uh, I want to assure anyone that's listening that that's not true. Um, what I do requires a great bit of physical exertion. Um, you build muscles, you sweat. Um, that said, it, it's not crushing to the spirit. It's, it's not something that demeans the soul. Um, there's nothing noble about it. Um, in my, from my point of view, it's, it's both physically and psychologically sane work. I mean, it literally, it's healthy for body and body and mind. Um, and that's, you know, when you're young, when you're going through your apprenticeship, you're going to labor which means you're going to clean, you're going to protect, you're going to mix. Most importantly, you're going to watch. And, and what you're building during that period of time is your, is your efficacy, you know, your ability to do. Um, we put so much emphasis on literacy and numeracy in children, their ability to write and to calculate. But to be able to be comfortable with your own body um, is something I think is very important for children to learn. And uh, as you're going through your apprenticeship, your your master, he's watching you. And um, he's going to, if you just show a modicum of that comfort, he's going to move you along. He's going to advance you just as soon as you're ready. And uh, so there's a process towards intellectual development, even within the traditional craft system, you know, after you go through that apprentice stage, you, you know, you're going to what they call a journeyman stage. And uh, you've learned by that point the means, the methods, the materials. You know plum and true. You know how to prepare a substrate, get it ready, and you know what it needs to look like when it's done. So you're, it's where that meaning of craft or the ancient German, uh, old German kraft comes from, which means kind of a, a power that that's... A, Power that's body and soul. It's 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 mental and physical. Um, and then you know, finally, to be a master um, means that you kind of go full circle. Um, you know, masters are really it's it's not in the sense of lording it over um, apprentices. You're you're serving the lowest. You're serving the the baby, the, the, the one that's just beginning to learn. And there's typically three avenues to do so. Um, 
there's the business avenue where you're creating a structure so that others have a place to work and learn. It's very important. Um, it, my interests probably fall in the other two. Um, one, another avenue would be to teach. And that's how the tradition happens because tradi tradition literally means from the Latin tradere is to pass across the threshold. And, um, and then finally, I would say the, um, the artistic. So um, you, you begin to focus more on the design. Uh, but it's a, it's a process. You, you don't put that at the start. These are things that in the traditional system, they, they come at the end. Um, they come after you've, you've really mastered your material. Then it's time to, to master yourself, in a sense. Patrick, I can see certainly the the role that that learning plays in in the in in the responsibility of being a master, as you say. But your writing seems to almost go beyond that. In in you know looking at ancient Egyptian gods and and the classics, which seem far removed to the to the business of being a plasterer today, uh, is this. Is this kind of a side interest or is it something that informs what you do? Well, you know, I don't, I, I wouldn't say it's necessary to me being a craftsman, but, you know, I have many craftsmen colleagues that have other interests. Some of them are very fine musicians. And so, um, and it all makes up a part of who they are. Um, for me, I, I've always had an interest in, and um, some background in philosophy and theology. Um, so um, I think it, it may not inform my craft directly, but it maybe it informs the way I think about the arts and crafts. And because in a sense, there is a craftsman's philosophy. Um, if philosophy means love of, of knowledge, um, there's a type of knowledge that doesn't come in speech. It doesn't come in words. It comes dramatically. It, it comes in acting things out and comes in doing. And, um, and then words can, can only say so much about that. It's something that has to be experienced. And um, I suppose my writings are my efforts to go to the very limit of um, what can be said about the things that I do in words. So I'm always exploring, exploring those limits. It probably is pushing me more, um, I think, as my writing is maturing towards poetry because um, prose still fits within the rules of language, let's say, but poetry allows you to, to start to kind of um, stretch, stretch those even further by breaking some of the rules, which, which is a, something that I'm kind of returning to now and starting to write poetry again to to do just that. Oh, interesting to to read some of that. Uh, but Patrick, in terms of philosophy, then looking at you know the dominant school of of Greek philosophy in in Western civilization, at least uh, clearly Plato's been very important in seeing uh, a world which is basically understandable through abstract forms, whether it's sort of mathematics or geometry or, or, or so on, uh, which, which does seem 
a different kind of matter to to what you call the uh, the learning through making or the demonstration of ideas. Uh, is that the way you you see it in terms of uh, this strain of thinking? Um, there is relation to form to 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 craft, um, particularly when you start. Um, doing things that are more decorative in nature um, and structural in nature. You know, Plato had a sign above the academy. I believe it read, I'm paraphrasing now, but um, read something like, let he who does not have knowledge of geometry not enter. Um, And, you know, the curious thing was, the skilled craftsmen of his day certainly had a knowledge of geometry, but they weren't welcome. And the as much as I appreciate so much of Plato, because I've read many of his works more than more than once, um, I, I, I do like much of the way his mind functions. Um, I think that his relation to craftsmanship and craftsmen was was dreadful. Um, he has all the sensibilities of an aristocrat uh, in, in, in the worst possible sense. And um, he had a term for craftsmen, um, the venousos, and it was completely pejorative. Um, he describes them as being lower than, lower than a slave, because in his opinion, the slave at least had the benefit of being in company of the master. So maybe some good would rub off on him. But for that independent craftsman, his case was hopeless because on a daily basis, he demeaned his body and his soul. He sold himself. And um, so that the whole spirit of Plato's teaching um, kind of has this, this, this Gnostic air. It was escape from this, this decadent, you know, disgusting physical unreality. We needed to escape the cave. Um, it's curious that we were talking about the cave earlier, that plaster allowed you to provide anywhere you went. That's, that's what he wanted to escape. He wanted all of humanity to be able to escape it. And instead he wants to, wanted to rekindle within us this spark um, to lose ourselves into the great light, this, this kind of pure intellectual spirit. He was very immaterial in his thinking. And um, and anyone who's an arts and craftsman is quite the opposite. They're, they're quite materialistic, not in the banal sense of wanting to acquire more, but um, they're actually quite in love with, um, you know, with phenomena. They're, they're in love with materials, stone, plaster, wood. There's an entire world of wonder you know, inside of, mater- inside of materials that um, they're, they're willing to surrender their life in pursuit of. Indeed. Well, it's ironic in the case of Plato, given that he often alluded to craft as, as a metaphor for the, the more abstract pursuits. I think like his uh, the dialogue, The Statesman, uh, mm. looks at the uh, uh, the weaving metaphor, you know, the, the carding of wool and so on in terms of state craft. Uh, but when it came to the actual craftspeople themselves, obviously they weren't uh, 
given a voice, which hopefully is something we can change. Um, you know, the Plato's Plato's uh, focus on abstraction obviously continues very much into the modern world and technology. And, you know, we've seen the recent rise of the metaverse, the idea of there being, speaking of escaping from the cave, perhaps it is going back into a cave in, in some way, but uh, the, the idea that uh, progress consists in transcending the kind of material world. Um, and as you say, with, you know, looking for, for plasterers in, in Europe, that there is a concern to find apprentices, people who will continue trade. So this is a common feature across the world now in terms of the, uh, the dilemma of, uh, of sustaining skills with a generation that uh, is so, so much at home with the, the screen in various forms. Uh, you know, reflecting on things, what, what do you see the, the value of craft in our world today? Well, I think one thing that it does for us is um, it allows us to do what our forefathers have done, um, to walk as our ancestors have walked. And um, that means that for those that engage in such activities, you know, the past is not a foreign country. It, you know, it means we belong and uh, that the entire sum of human capacity, human achievement, is our heritage as well. Um, so if you were to stand before the Parthenon or walk the Appian Way, um, if you're to hear a chorus in a Gothic cathedral, um, you have all these enduring works of the human hand um, that to me, they, they, what they do is they stand as a witness to what's, what's beautiful inside of us. And um, that beauty gets expressed through the human hand. And, um, and in some way, the fact that the human hand has touched these places um, makes them sacred. And so these places become places of pilgrimage, not just for those who might belong to the formal religious belief that they're associated with. But you know, I think Gothic cathedrals provide a fine example. People of all ages, walks of life from all cultures around the world, they come to those places and they just stand in awe before the flying buttresses and the, those rising vaults and the stained glass. Um, you know, they, they are, they're, they're sacred. They're places of pilgrimage for everyone because they are so imbued, infused with, with human humanity, and they're so material. We, we like to say that although there's spiritual places, maybe so, but they are very much material places. So it sounds like uh, it helps us take our measure of things. Uh, rather than what we would tend to believe, which of course is that everything is always getting better and that the past is uh, uh, a sign of, of where there was ignorance and uh, superstition. But uh, seeing those aspects of the past, such as a cathedral, uh, help us 
think about ourselves not as exceptions, but as part of something continuing. Is that right? Yeah, I think I think some people, um, perhaps some of the more philosophically minded, if you if you go into a Gnostic, I mean, a um, Gothic cathedral rather, it can be quite it can be quite intimidating. Like, let's say you're a contemporary architect and you go into one of these magnificent places. Um, you know, it, perhaps the, the right attitude might be reverence, um, but if you go into the wrong attitude, you can be, you can be intimidated. And, uh, and when you, when you are intimidated, it, it, it's easy to, um, <laughs> to, um, find reasons why, you know, that to, to criticize and, and find reasons because you can't do it, you know, and, and maybe the educational system that you can't came out of couldn't produce anything like that. Then it, then it has to be, it has to be discredited in some way, which, which I think is really, is very unfortunate. Um, we need to have tremendous respect, um, for the evident display of mastery that those before before us uh, manifested. Indeed. Uh, can I just finally reflect on uh, what is quite a remarkable aspect of your practice, which is that you're producing uh, quite voluminous knowledge uh, that you're you're gathering and, and creating that you're, you're sharing on your website. And uh, we're, we're used to, certainly in, in the modern era, thinking about uh, you know, knowledge that has, has substance as being something that is really produced through the, the academic system, that knowledge that has uh, hard knowledge is, is published in peer-reviewed journals or university presses and, and so on. Um, and this is one of the issues in craft, obviously, that there isn't uh, as great an access to, to those forums as, as in other forms of knowledge. But uh, where, do you, where do you see your work? Uh, uh, is, is it transitory? Because, of course, being published online is something that depends on various servers and so on. You've come across a lot of dead links, I'm sure, that, that show that, that things will, will disappear. Uh, are you happy with that, or do you do you are you looking for alternative ways in which this knowledge can be be shared and preserved? Well, I guess to this point, my my attitude has been rather selfish. I, I write those blog essays um, for myself rather than anyone else. It's it, it's just a way of working out, you know, my thoughts about craft, and and you know, I put them out there in case anyone else would like to see them. Um, but, um, I, I have been thinking, um, the last couple of years and beginning to write outlines for a couple of books, um, that I'd like to write and maybe get published, um, you know, dealing with one of them is probably a bit more past to present oriented, um, has maybe a working title of, um, why can't we build the way we used to? And um, and I think the premise that I've been working on um, 
is that the how we act in the world, what we do in the world, um, what precedes that is is the way we conceive the world, the way we think about the world. So um, in our contemporary society, the leading lights of thought, as, as you mentioned, are typically the university. And um, from what I've discovered, the arts and crafts certainly were not born of a university. Um, they rather went there to wither and die. And uh, there's a reason for this. Um, I'm, I'm not trying to be overly you know, critical of the academy, but you have to understand what the academy does. It's, it's a place of intellect and cognition. So their trade is in representation and sign and symbol, and sign, sign and symbol. And that's predominantly in language and the relations of ideas. That's what the university is structured to do. And that's what it, that's what it does most effectively. Um, but craft uses man not as a not as an angel, but but as an animal, and the contrast is is rather dramatic because craftsmen typically act out their knowledge. It's that I keep coming back to this, but it's their their embodied experience, and um, and that embodied experience, how it gets preserved is not in literature. It gets preserved, you know, um, directly. It, by by teaching through that apprenticeship system, and uh, so that's the mechanism for passing over that traditional threshold. Um, the records that we keep, we have very accurate records of uh, the arts and crafts, and they're in the stones that we carve. They always tell the truth. You know, they're they're, they're not subject to a wide range of interpretation. So perhaps what my essays have done to this point is um, they're a finger, you know, pointing to the reality. And I wouldn't want anyone to conflate the things I say with the greater reality that they point towards. Right. Well, I think this, this does point to, you know, a challenge that we have and one that perhaps brooks a, a much longer conversation about uh, the nature, the nature of knowledge that we often see as being uh, something very formal and abstract, or scientific, I should say. And but we know, particularly looking at something like wisdom, that there's also a blend of knowledge and what you might call faith, which is a, a less less easy to conceptualise, but is born of experience and something which we see manifest in skill and uh, an understanding of that aspect of knowledge yeah, is a tricky one to try and uh, represent and to, to honour, which is something we're certainly looking at in terms of the, the knowledge house for craft that Garland is associated with. I, anyway, that's, say, that's to be looked at. I, yes, I, Patrick. Just one comment on, on that knowledge. You know, in English, unfortunately for us, we we have one term to know that kind of covers a multitude of, of meanings. Um, I know in both in German and in Latin languages, they differentiate strongly um, with two different words. Um, the knowing what, kind of that scientific type of knowledge, being able to limit and define things, 
to knowing who. So, um, and it's the knowing who is like, you don't know, um, you don't know how to, a mathematical formula in the same way that you know your sister or your mother, you know? And, and I think it's the latter type of knowledge, even though both exist in craft, the latter type of knowledge is that more representative of how a craftsman knows his materials or he knows his craft. It's, it's intimate. It's something that he has a lifelong relationship with and is always uncovering new facets of. Um, it's, it's not something restricted and um, defined. Yes, it's, it's familiar. And by the sound of it, it's also circular. It's a reciprocal relationship when it comes to, 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 to people we know. So thank you very much, Patrick. But can I just, uh, finally, just as a footnote, uh, you know, we have a diverse uh, audience in Garland and no doubt many people will have pricked their ears when, when hearing you, uh, you know, use gendered language uh, like man and forefathers and, and so on. We all, we all know what the, the current situation is, but I, I, just to give you an opportunity if you'd, like to talk about uh, the gendered nature of craft. Is it something associated particularly with the, the male gender? How do, you, how do you see it? Or is this kind of a convention that, that language provides? Well, I think, um, you know, I mean, this has become controversial now, but um, up until um, probably my parents' generation, um, you had always had three genders in English. You had male, female, and neuter. And neuter is expressed more often than not. Uh, we have some neuter words like it or they, but more often than not, um, the neuter gender was expressed and the same as the male pronouns. So to me, it wasn't it wasn't controver- It's not controversial to say crafts craftsmen or craftsmen when referring to anyone. Um, It's interesting because I had some students when I was teaching at the American College of the Building Arts. um, We were about 50-50, male and female students. I think uh, increasingly, at least in traditional plaster, that's almost what it is. We, at least in the States, we have, you know, a lot of um, women coming up and taking interest in the trades, which is wonderful. Um, they, I asked them about that, you know, do you want to be called craftsman, craftswoman, craftsperson? And, uh, the thing that they were most vocal about was definitely not craftsperson. It just, it, it just sounded completely artificial. Um, they didn't like craftswoman either because they're like, no, we want to be called a craftsman or craftsmen because, that's that's what connects us. That's the word that's been used forever. That's what connects us to the long tradition. And um, it's like no one's going to conf- by you, when you call me that. No one's going to confuse, be confused, and think that I'm a man. I'm I'm, I'm off. They were happy to be women doing this type of work. Um, so yeah, I think that, that that's anecdotal. You know, those were the 
those were my students um, or other people that I've talked to in the crafts. But I think, again, that it just feels like this is an academic um, issue. You know, again, they're, they're playing games with language and we'd rather be playing with materials than, than sparring over words, you know. Um, you know, when you, you gain respect in the crafts because you can do good work, <laughs> you know, um, that's what gains you respect. Um, not where you're from, you know, what sex you are, the, those are of, of um, much less consequence. Good. Well, I'm very glad I gave you that opportunity, Patrick, uh, to to articulate that, and I, I hope it uh, opens up the kind of conversation and dialogue that we're having about uh, craft and culture here. So, Patrick, thank you so much for for sharing with us uh, your, your very hands-on knowledge of uh, the world of, of humanity and uh, plaster. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure, Kevin. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from Garland Magazine. Please check our website, garlandmag.com, for more stories behind what we make.